Welcome to episode 26 of Rethinking with Alex Torpy. In this episode, I reflect on some really cool experiences and consulting projects in New Jersey working with kids over the last year and how that ties into our civic futures. We cover a lot of ground from technology to mental health to the environment. I think this is a really cool episode. And like always, if you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, like, leave a review, or share this episode with a friend. Enjoy. Before I jump into a few thoughts about youth and civics and our future, I wanted to reflect for a few minutes on my own context coming to this conversation. Why and how I was thinking about all this over the last year. And what got me to some of the reflections that I'm going to share with you in a few minutes. If you want to skip all that, feel free to go forward, but I think it's helpful background. And I would say, I think the context of people whose information we listen to and ideas we listen to is also probably pretty important. Now, when my lease was up uh, uh, at the end of April last year, I was also coming to the end of a few other things. Uh, including the semester for the course that I teach in Seton Hall University's Master of Public Administration program, and the end of a really cool consulting project that I had been doing for the prior year with Sustainable Jersey called the Public Information and Engagement Technology Assessment. At the time, I had been looking to buy a home in the Trenton, New Jersey area, and man, was that housing market awful back in April and May of 2021. And with clearly misguided hopes that it would improve, it seemed like the perfect time to do something I've wanted to do for years, hit the road for a couple months. And in this time, I would get to work on my science fiction novel that I started writing last year, to work on my podcast that you're listening to right this very moment, and work on a few other projects that I was doing, such as one with the New Jersey Municipal Management Association about community engagement um, in New Jersey among local governments. And I wanted a chance to really reflect on my values and my goals. This is something that I do at least once a year in a very intentional way. But the prior year or so, it had been so crazy with COVID and my experience working in Lambertville and the growing frustration with some of the politics um, in New Jersey. Now, I was hoping the housing market would be better upon my return, uh, but that I would also have the chance to do all those things and see some friends and explore some really beautiful parts of the country and everything else. So fast forward a little bit to the end of the summer, August or September, now about 15,000 miles uh, under my belt, Uh, 15 states, about 15 states, and at least that many national parks and national forests under my belt, I was making a decision. The decision was whether I should stay on the road for a bit longer into the fall or start to come back to NJ and start getting some plans that I was thinking about um, put in motion. Some of it was related to local government community engagement work that I had been doing, and some in a couple other arenas. But I was looking at the idea of splitting my time a little bit, something I've always wanted to do more of, between being outdoors and not on a computer, and basically everything else that I'm working on, which is often at a computer or sitting down. So there was a program staff opening that was available at Fairview Lake YMCA. This is in Stillwater, New Jersey, which is in Sussex County. And uh, my sister and I went there for many years as kids. And actually, a pretty good percent of uh, kids from Columbia High School in the Maplewood South Orange area went there as well. Um, And it's a really wonderful place, 660 acres in 
uh, abutting the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area in New Jersey. So I'd get to spend some time outdoors, taking kids on hikes, being a little more extroverted than I usually am, teaching ecology classes, doing some archery and riflery, um, and time to work on some of the projects that I had mentioned uh, just before, and get to live in a really beautiful area, literally steps away from the Appalachian Trail. So I did that. And the time and experience there, uh, along with a few other things that have been luckily sort of symbiotic, these really left a bigger impression on me than I was expecting um, in a few different ways. So now fast forward again till now. It's a little less than exactly one year before I left on that trip. And again, the semester at Seton Hall has ended. And again, I just finished up a really interesting consulting project. This one was designing and implementing a civics pilot program for a middle school in New Jersey. And so as I write this episode, I was beginning to embark on a new adventure, uh, which as I'm recording it, I am now embarked on, which uh, is having headed up to Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, to be the town manager. It's a wonderful small college town in the Upper Valley, home of Dartmouth College, 120 miles of trails within the town, including the Appalachian Trail, and a major community-wide commitment to things like sustainability and civic and public engagement and a whole bunch of interesting stuff. There's a few things that I wanted to reflect on, mostly related to civics and, as my favorite fictional lawyer might call them, Utes. Now, there's been a lot of time, if you have, if don't know that reference, uh, you should definitely go watch My Cousin Vinny. Now, we are in a weird place. I mean, as a culture, as a society, as a world, there is so much out there that feels like apathy or exhaustion or exasperation and frustration among so many different graph demographics and age groups, especially for young people. And for example, I just read an article recently about how the way that many adults talk about climate issues to try and use language that exaggerates the consequences of something because of its importance level to the speaker, a very common problem with how people express issues that are important to them, that there are kids who mistakenly believe that the world is going to literally end from climate change in the coming years and decades, like that the planet will be destroyed or uninhabitable. I do not think that is what most scientists are saying. Yes, there are significant impacts that are very harmful to us and our futures, and we must uh, take some action to correct them. Um, but is the planet going to be a lifeless dust bowl in 10 years? Probably not. And if it is, it's probably not from climate change. But that's the way a lot of people talk about it, and that's the way a lot of people talk about a lot of things. But imagine being a young person and hearing that language about the planet that you live on. That is so different than what the mindset has been for so many decades, a problematic mindset, which is that the Earth is an unlimited bounty of resources for humans to use in whatever the way they want. But imagine coming into a world with the opposite narrative, that things are going to be destroyed and you may not be inheriting anything. Add to that what kids in high school and middle school and elementary school are surrounded by, the violence, the tragic violence they see in their schools, the totally unclear economic outlooks for their own futures, this insane and divisive and unproductive and mean-spirited political system, 
outdated ideas about economics and institutions that don't serve the interests of these younger generations at all and were never meant to. Bad or non-existent mental health resources in a world that is increasingly organized around feeding personal attention to advertising brokers who shroud their unprecedentedly invasive data collection and psychological manipulation in really slick-feeling products. I think it's easy to understand why young people might feel overwhelmed or might not feel bought into some of these systems or just weighted down with anxiety. I mean, think about how many adults are struggling with this over the last couple of years. How many adults are weighted down with anxiety or fatigue to they can't even email or text their friends back or get out of bed or work on that project they've been putting off or struggling with depression. Just imagine how much less preparation and infrastructure young kids have and how much worse that is for them. Yet, I think there is incredible hope. And I wanted to share a few things that have sort of jumped out at me in these interesting uh, different capacities that I've got to have uh, over the last six or nine months um, engaging with a lot of young people in different ways. First, these kids are ridiculously plugged into the world at a very high level. And many are cynical uh, already but they're also really uh, plugged in. They're really engaged with big picture ideas. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, I've had super interesting discussions with 15-year-olds about voting rights. I've heard 12-year-olds talk about the problems with partisan division fueled by social media technology products. They're really aware of a lot that is happening in the world to agree. I don't really think that um, we can appreciate. Now, second... When I say plugged in, I almost mean literally plugged in. The technology use uh, among this generation really is pretty wild. And I've seen a few different um, sides of this. You know, I think all of us are very desensitized to this, unfortunately, because we have been like the lobster boiling alive in the pot. But when you see seven or eight-year-olds glued to screens in school and screens everywhere— with so much of that provided by companies who may or may not have the best interests of the kids in mind, it's all kind of shocking and intense. It's a big difference than, I don't even remember what those projectors were called where you wrote on the clear uh, piece of film and it got projected up on the wall. It's a big difference than every kid having their own uh, laptop, and that laptop probably collecting data on them. Our best knowledge suggests that this kind of technology use can and will have negative impacts, and on a broad level in our culture, I don't think we're fully taking this into account or really doing much of anything other than continuing to allow short-term benefits to move the ball forward without a ton of intentional thought. Like I mentioned earlier, I do think it's possible that this much younger generation will rebel against this and the pendulum could shift the other way, but I'm not sure. But part of the reason that I think that is that uh, the other side of this experience with kids is that I have seen a lot of them unplug and do it better than I have seen many adults. I have seen, I've spent hours at a time with kids hanging out in the woods and doing activities where they're happy to be hanging out with each other. They're happy to be outside. They are happy to be in nature and learn about those things. Um, and they, uh, you know, there's kids who are not... They are um, they are missing their technology, or they don't love it outdoors. But by the by far, the majority were so happy, and that 
the people who were actually bringing bad habits into those spaces were not the kids, but were actually the parents. Stories that I've heard from people who have worked at uh, uh, different summer camps around is that, um, you know, a lot of camps don't allow kids to take their uh, cell phones or smartphone with them to the camp, but that then the kid will get caught with one. And when they figure out what happened, it wasn't the kid who snuck it in. It was the parent who forced the kid to sneak it in. And I've seen that kind of stuff firsthand. And uh, it's really interesting. I think many people who don't spend a lot of time around people like young kids that are, you know, under 18 or 15 or even younger, they might think that those kids are all like addicted to the technology. Well, they're using it a lot. Sure. But they didn't choose to be remote in school. They didn't choose to get those laptops. They didn't choose if their parent sneaks a phone in with them to summer camp. Um, and actually, I think a lot of these kids are, they are uh, hyper aware of, of the world around them. And they are aware of some of the negative um, impacts that, you know, this kind of technology use can have and that they enjoy when they don't have to use it, especially after the last couple of years. Maybe there'll be a pendulum shift away from this technology, from this younger generation. Um, certainly couldn't blame them. And uh, will be really interesting to see where that goes. Now, number three. Now, as some of you may know from some of my work and prior podcast content, uh, I believe that we give mental health or wellness or more broadly how our brains or minds or thoughts work uh, extremely deficient uh, attention. And one of the most important values that I've come upon in that regard only solidified through these experiences is that resilience is really important. This might be, or this certainly will be a topic for another episode, but emotional and mental resilience that many adults don't really possess, some do, but many don't, this is a huge challenge for many young kids who are often not being given the opportunity to try and fail and succeed and learn and grow on their own. Some of them are great at this, but many are not, and the environments they're in aren't giving them the chance to do that. Some of those kids, they seem to get really overwhelmed by really small setbacks really easily. I think this is a really interesting and important topic, and it's one I spent a lot of time on because it's a crucial component in thinking about how to identify good leadership values or leaders, especially in public systems. It seems to be one of the most important qualities a potential leader could possess, a confidence and capacity to navigate whatever comes at them in a way that is at least somewhat level-headed and reasonable and allows them to make decisions that are in the best alignment with their values and goals. And I really worry that we are not giving kids the opportunity to develop this, in part because many adults don't have it, but I don't think people see it as sort of a discrete element. And if they do, they don't see it as a priority. And I also don't think this is easy to do because how do you create scenarios that are genuinely challenging for a young person to have to overcome and build that resiliency at a young age with so much research points to being important, but without actually putting them in harm's way or at some sort of uh, risk or danger? I don't know where or how to draw this line exactly. But I do know, or at least I would say it feels like, that we are uh, sort of doing the opposite, which is making everything as convenient and comfortable and safe as possible. And I think we have probably gone too far in that direction. 
ensuring safety is important. I say that as an, <laughs> 10 years as an emergency medical technician. Um, it's definitely important. But I don't think that we have the capability to discuss this topic in a nuanced way in 2022 because complete safety is never a guarantee or possible to attain. And in fact, the pursuit of it seems to coincide with all sorts of strange issues that we have as a modern culture, including about death, risk aversion, anxiety, control, and a whole bunch of other areas that I'm not, I don't think I'm fully qualified to speak on. And maybe it's a larger topic that I could explore at some point here. But my concern and frustration um, is what I consider to be something like a dystopian cultural meme uh, where people wish each other a safe day all the time. And that the way this overly safe risk-averse mindset can seep into every way that we think and live, how we make decisions and how we analyze risk, even when the risk isn't associated with actual physical safety. And from all of my amateur studies of evolutionary biology and psychology and neuroscience, the way that our brain develops tends to be in these layers like that. And so the parts of the brain that might be responsible for physical safety might also um, be responsible for social safety or cultural safety or political safety um, and things like that. And in fact, this is another topic that I've only... Um, dip my toes into, but I think that our issues around death in that we don't want it to happen and are a little bit maybe arrogant enough to think that we can kind of push it off, though I'm sure we will accomplish that one day, that's not a good dynamic. Um, I think it's a rejection of the one thing that is the only thing that's more certain than living. Now, I was talking about this recently with someone, and I described this mindset as pasteurized living, and I sort of like that. Yes, you have reduced the risk, but you've also reduced the benefit. Again, I don't know exactly how to balance this or draw the line, and it's a much broader conversation. And I don't have all my feelings worked out here, but I do want to point out that I am concerned that we are way too far in the pasteurized direction, and that if we want our kids to grow up to be strong, resilient, well-adjusted people and leaders who are able to navigate this kind of insane world that we are leaving them with, we need to find more ways to safely challenge them more than I think we do at a young age. I'm fairly sure that if we do that, if we can put infrastructure in place to help young people develop that, I have incredibly high hopes for what they can accomplish. They're so tuned into broad issues, so empathetic, so supportive of people being able to be individuals in a way that makes them happy. And like, isn't that kind of what this whole US of A experiment is all about? I think the younger generations can maybe save ourselves from ourselves, but only if we provide them some of the resources to become the best versions of themselves while they are young and learning and before they get older and set in their ways. A whole other topic. Now, last on that note is that much of my thinking and work over the last years and last year or so especially keeps taking me to corners of thought and story that derive from various um, Native American or indigenous teachings and philosophies. One such example is about these leadership values that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about resiliency, right? Now, I've worked on 
a number of projects in a few capacities with organizations and universities and companies in trying to identify leadership values and using to do that using uh, expensive consultant reports and studies and journal articles and all sorts of things. Yet throughout all those reports, I'm not sure that anything I found was as good as some of the values that were discussed in something uh, that I first came across last year when I was traveling across the country and uh, spent a little time on the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Reservation. This is the Teachings of the Seven Grandfathers, uh, which is, I believe, historically an Anishinaabe uh, set of stories about not just leadership, but life values. And those values were sort of expanded a bit and explored in a really great book called The Lakota Way by Joseph Marshall, where he talks about bravery, fortitude, generosity, wisdom, respect, honor, perseverance, love, humility, sacrifice, sacrifice, truth, and compassion. I think resilience fits into a few of those, like perseverance and fortitude, humility, and sacrifice. And I guess just the point that I want to make here is that perhaps instead of spending so much time helping people get a better grade on a test or memorize some sort of formula or recite some something, um, maybe what one academic thought about what some other academic thought, we could spend some of that time exploring values like these and making sure our education system facilitates the healthy development of these sorts of values, the kinds of values that could be meta skills for individuals, helping young people grow and develop in ways that will enable them to navigate in a way that is consistent with what they believe. And I think this is a perfect segue to number four. So for number four, let's talk about civics education. Now, anyone who knows me really at all knows that I love to inject politics or philosophy into conversations whenever I can. Now, I did this with a lot of the young people that I've been interacting with as well, uh, whenever appropriate, and they were often very interested in having conversations. Sometimes these kids are just 10 or 11 years old, and they had impressively constructed thoughts on the world, on equality and governance environments and all these things like that. And it was really interesting talking to them about the future, uh, because they would, of course, mention at some point in the conversation that it didn't really matter what they thought about things because they can't vote. That's really hard to hear from someone who's really interested in what's happening around them. But many of these kids are going to schools that don't have any civics education. Now, some of them didn't. In fact, the kids that went to the middle school that I worked with, uh, they did a really great job with some of this um, beyond just piloting a civics program, but the way that they created experiential um, projects in school around these kinds of topics and help students take ownership over some of these issues in their education. A lot of schools don't do that. In fact, if you can believe it, many schools that I have talked to they are down now where kids have a 20, middle school kids have a 20-minute lunch and no recess. 20-minute lunch and no recess. So many of those schools, they definitely do not have civics education. Yet more civics education is one of the things that I have found to be nearly universally supported from people of all different political and demographic backgrounds. Now, I'm sure to some extent that depends on what the civics education content is, but largely people agree that we need more of it. And I've learned this not just from reading uh, and seeing data and studies about it, but collecting quantitative and qualitative data firsthand about this, such as through the Pathways for America program that I led from 2016 to 2018, where we engaged with hundreds of Americans from all different political and demographic backgrounds from all across the country about how to imagine a better civic future. 
I believe that every single gathering of people that we hosted, which included in-person and remote events all over the country, about 30 or 35 of them, every single one had civics education as a high priority. And you know what else people said was a high priority in every single gathering? Having the chance to discuss big picture topics with people who have a different background than yourself. Now think about it, especially as an adult or a post-college human. What infrastructure is there out there for continued learning and engagement about topics that impact the world around us where you are being placed in an environment that is specifically meant to facilitate greater understanding from learning from other people who have different backgrounds than you? Side note, definitely check out organizations like Braver Angels. So I worked with a school in Morristown, New Jersey, Unity Charter School, on developing and implementing a civics pilot program for their 6th, 7th, and 8th graders that we finished up recently, and it was really interesting. So there's a few things that we built into the program that I just wanted to mention. I think this is pretty cool. So one was uh, helping facilitate a feeling of agency over oneself and one's thoughts and beliefs and one's ability to design their education and impact systems around this. It's something they were already doing a lot of at Unity because they allow the students are involved in helping direct their education to some degree. We really wanted to help create that individual agency. Another was the value of diversity and multiple perspectives and creating environments that aren't just filled by people who agree with you, but talking about the importance of difference, uh, of having a difference of opinions and strategies for learning from people who have different ideas than you do. We talked about how to effectively navigate the, um, how to effectively navigate consuming and sharing of information online, finding credible sources and what your responsibilities are in sharing information, probably a lesson all of us could take. Um, and also taking lessons from biological systems and using them to uh, enable ourselves to do better systems analysis on human systems. So looking at an ecosystem and breaking that into different pieces and then using that same way of thinking to break apart a community looking at a local law. The next was a case study that I've used in my master's class for years, and it was um, we weren't sure it would actually work with the younger kids, but it did. It was really interesting, and it was uh, exploring... If you live in New Jersey, I'm sure you've heard of this, the George Washington Bridge, Bridgegate scandal from a number of years ago. Um, and if you haven't heard of it, uh, check it out, uh, although maybe not because it doesn't do New Jersey any favors. Now, the important thing about what happened here is, not, is in fact, not all of the details that is in all the news reporting. Uh, because what all of that misses is the deeper dynamics about why these things happen over and over again. In fact, what we do is we look at the Wikipedia article, which is very detailed. We look at a whole number of mainstream traditional news sources about, um, about the events that took place. And what you find is things like articles that say the background of the George Washington Bridge lane closure scandal and then the background goes to a month before the event happened. That's not when it started. It started much earlier than that when the culture of being allowed to be in a position of government and use that position of government to implement either personal or political or business interests, that that culture exists in New Jersey and in a lot of parts of the country and world. Um, and that that has happened before and will happen again. And for some reason, all of the media coverage of that skipped that. And it all focused on what individuals did, not why this is happening. The why this is happening, again, is that there was a pre-existing culture 
where people can use government to accomplish a political goal. In this case, this was uh, administration uh, and staff members at the Port Authority who used those positions to punish a mayor that the George Washington Bridge um, uh, terminates at New Jersey in Fort Lee to punish that mayor for not endorsing the governor. This kind of thing happens all the time. I've seen it literally a thousand times in my time in government in New Jersey. And getting kids to engage with this and think about really not just the issues of the event, but a systemic analysis. Well, who cares who emailed who at 10.01 a.m.? We're not getting to the root cause of why the same type of thing happens over and over and over again. And if we want to solve these problems, we can't just put people away, although actually nobody did get put away for any of that. But we have to address the underlying systemic issues that allow for cultures like that to persist. And we had that conversation with middle school kids, and they engaged in it. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Um, we also uh, reflected on implicit values or worldviews that we each bring to the table, and we contrasted, for example, Western values with other cultures, such as some um, indigenous cultures uh, from North America. Now, What's kind of incredible about all of those is the student's ability to really zoom out and think big picture. It was, it was um, shocking and inspirational. The same for the assignment that many of the students did where we want them uh, to basically pitch an idea of what's the number one thing that you want to see different in the world in 10 years. And I often find uh, difficulty getting adults to think really big picture when I ask that question, whereas these kids... They went right to some of the biggest picture stuff. Um, for example, some of the problems with political and partisan division, some of the problems with social media. Um, we had one kid who talked about drug policy. We had some kids talk about technology. Uh, we had some talk about um, mental health and body image problems with social media and the Internet. I mean, they are so big picture. It is amazing, especially about the environment and climate issues, which unfortunately, seems to be necessary from their generation's perspective. Now, lastly, I think if we don't provide a narrative to anchor young people into buying into something, they're going to create their own, which might be better or worse. I don't know, but I do think it's going to be very different looking than the things that we might be more used to. They don't have a lot of faith in institutions, and <laughs> you can't really blame them. But my worry is that when people get uh, divested from institutions, they often conflate that these systems are currently failing with the idea that all systems will fail. And, of course, and as an administrator, I don't think that's true. I think you can design good systems, um, and I don't think that we should divest from the idea of people working with each other to accomplish goals because everybody, no matter your political persuasion, no matter where you live in the country, no matter anything, we all are bought into that idea to some degree. It just depends on who's doing it and how do the systems function do Is there accountability? Are there safeguards built in? Um, but I don't think there's that many people out there who don't believe that getting together with some other people is often a better way to solve a problem. Um, and I would hate to see people being divested from that idea because the current institutions that are supposed to support those things are failing for them to such a large degree. And so I don't think that most people realize how different the narrative is for many young people and how important this is. You know, there was a narrative, for example, for baby boomers and maybe for Gen X as well, but certainly for baby boomers, that basically if you get a good job and you work hard at that job and you do that for a while, you get to live the American dream. You get a couple kids, 
you get a house. Now, not everybody was able to participate in that, and there's no shortage of biases about who was excluded from those things. But overall, there was a broader kind of cohesive narrative that bought people into an ideology, an ideology which uh, has some downsides but has also produced an enormous amount of advancement and wealth and lifting people out of poverty. So forgetting for the fact about whether you think that uh, you know, post-World War II uh, U.S. economic and economic development is good or bad, it did happen very effectively um, with many people bought into that narrative. But that narrative about getting a good job and you do all those things and then you'll get you get you get to participate in that economic boom and you get to retire afterwards. I don't think that exists anymore. Um, I don't think there is a narrative anymore for young people in that way. You've all know Harari talks about this in a really interesting way. And I think this deficiency in a narrative is both the result of and the cause of a lot of other issues, such as the shitty way that we build buildings, move ourselves to and from work in other places, make and buy products, consume food, talk to each other. We have stripped so much humanity out of those things that we have left people with very little to grasp especially as places become less religious, and we don't consider how important collective activities like that are to sustaining cultural and social cohesion. We rip the feeling of community and humanity away from people, build high-rises where people don't even say hi to each other in the elevator, and then we're all confused about why people are grasping for community in all these directions, including the unhealthy ones. Perhaps we'll see a realignment in some ways with the possibility that our reliance on this sort of faceless, globalized system seems to be maybe moving back a little bit. Maybe we're scaling that back and focusing a little bit more on regional and local supply chains and dynamics um, where you might uh, know where your food comes from or have a personal relationship with your butcher or your farmer who raises the animal or know the person who made your clothes or feel connected to the spaces that people live and gather in. We have some really conceptual soul-searching to do here, and I think if we don't do it, well, young people will, but that transition period could be really rough. So there's a lot of stuff I reflected on here. This included, number one, that we don't really appreciate how plugged in young people are to this really crazy world mentally, that they're really hyper-aware of a lot of the things that are happening in a way I don't think we give full credit to. Number two, that extends to literally how plugged in they are to technology, um, yet that there is still an opportunity for them to really unplug from that technology, that it's not actually all coming from them, but it's us pushing it, some of that on them. Number three, that mental health and identifying more sustainable values like resilience is critical to making that a part of um, a healthy education and helping young people grow and develop into being really competent, level-headed, resilient adults and leaders. Number four, civics education, and not to brainwash people with ideas about how things are supposed to work, but rather to equip them with analytical and critical thinking skills and tools so that they can navigate these things themselves in the future. And number five, that we should consider what kind of narrative that we are creating and leaving for these younger generation. What is the glue that provides a framework for how we all live together? I don't really have a conclusion or a final point, really. I just wanted to share some of these reflections on a few really, really interesting experiences that I have been lucky to have in New Jersey over the last year or so, and that have taught me a lot. And honestly, they make me, and spending that much time with young kids makes me feel cautiously very optimistic about our potential futures. 
But I guess if anything, actually my final point is that this future isn't going to happen by default. We can't just dump the world on these young people and expect it to be fine. Our job is not done. And if we can't address these issues directly, I think the next best thing at least, and probably something we should be doing anyway, is really committing to set up our youngest generations for real success. How can each of us do that in our own lives? Do you agree or disagree or have different thoughts with some of the ideas or premises that I've outlined here? What can you, what can we each do in our personal lives, our professional lives, and our political lives to support young people who will have the daunting task of constructing the path forward that our species will take into the future? Hey everyone, Alex here. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.